On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, which is our uh, first one of 2024, we are joined by Mark Hissey, who is the Senior VP for Development at Discovery Land Company. Um, but uh, as you'll hear, Mark has had quite an interesting uh, career, um, did not not only did not grow up playing golf, grew up in really impoverished surroundings in um, Wales, um, and um, golf really was not at all part of his life growing up, to put it mildly, as he notes. Uh, and he goes from there and ends up uh, with a great story that he'll tell you about, um, getting uh, a scholarship to Harvard. Um, so it comes to the States, and then uh, works for a fellow um, uh, at Oxford Resources Corp., which was an auto leasing company, for 15 years. And that same person, as we'll talk about, ends up um, being the uh, force behind the founding of Sabonic Golf Club uh, on Long Island. Uh, and uh, Mark gets um, uh, tapped to be uh, pivot over to that role uh, for this fellow and um, that starts his journey in golf um, and he um, goes back to Harvard Graduate School of Design to study golf architecture and um, uh, mans the Sabonic Golf Club project and, and, and some other projects and, and then you know the last 10 years has been um, the senior VP as I said for development for Discovery Land Company. So uh, quite an interesting um, path, and you, as you'll quickly see, Mark is really uh, well-schooled in golf architecture and um, has had quite a fascinating life in that area um, in these various projects uh, with Sabonic and others um, over uh, the last 25 years. So up next on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, Mark Hissey of Discovery Land Company. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. Actually, we're kicking off our 2024 season, um, and uh, we took a little break over the holidays, but I'm so happy today to welcome to the program Mark Hissey, who is Senior VP for Development at Discovery Land Company, who's had a really interesting and continues to have a very interesting career um, in the golf industry in that role. Uh, and we'll talk about that in other roles. Mark, thank you so much for making time today to join us. Pleasure to be here, Larry. It really is. So um, let maybe just to go back a little bit, give people a little uh, context. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and whether golf was part of uh, your life growing up at all? Um, be interested to hear uh, that. Um Golf couldn't have been further from uh, from my uh, from my background. <laughs> uh, um, I was uh, I was brought up in a pretty impoverished background, actually, in Cardiff, okay. in Wales. Okay. Um, I was uh, I was brought up in the port area of the city, which was particularly rough in the sixties and seventies. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to get, as as was common in the United States at that time, uh, to get bused to the good school. And, uh, and so sort of things, uh, things went on from there and, uh, you know, I just, it, it was a lifeline for me, to be honest with you. It was, uh, it, it was a pretty awful, um, uh, early part of my life. Wow. Um, but, wow. uh, my, my only exposure to golf, which is, which is amusing was when I was uh, nine, nine years old. Uh, I had a cousin who was, uh, was sort of living high on the hog at the time and he played golf and he asked me if I would caddy for him. And I didn't even know what that meant. Um, and uh, I remember it vividly. It was 1971. Um, and um, uh, uh, it, it, <laughs> I always make these references to soccer because I'm a huge soccer fan. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. But, but it was right before uh, the European Cup final between Ajax and Amsterdam and, uh, and Panathinaikos. And um, I remember it because I was in the hospital begging to be able to watch it. Yeah. I wandered in front of the tee, not knowing that you weren't supposed to do that uh, when I was caddying for my cousin. And he hit a drive and it hit me right in the back of the head. Oh, my uh, gosh. Oh, my. And completely laid me out. And, wow. Uh, and I was in hospital for, uh, for a number of days with a fractured skull. Oh, and, gosh. Uh, oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, and all I can remember, my my priority was just making sure I could watch the soccer game. 
<laughs> well, well, listen, I, I, um, I'm good on the soccer references. Both of our two oldest sons played and um, huge Premier League fans. And we've taken trips to the UK. And, you know, as I've told people here who aren't familiar with that, there's nothing, even college football, there's nothing in the States to me that compares to Premier League games. And and I, I remember when we, you know, had to get our tickets and they said, well, which side are you rooting for? Because they had to keep the fans segregated. And um, uh, I just, yeah, I have many memories of that one trip. So I'm, I'm great on the soccer references. I refereed yeah. soccer for a number of years for my kids team. So I'm, I'm good on that. And I know, I know how passionate people are on that. So, so you grew up there. And so um, you made it over to the States for college, right? Yeah, correct. Um, so, um, as I was mentioning, I was um, uh, I, I was blessed at a good school, and uh, I did pretty well academically. I was a good athlete, and when I was around about um, fourteen or fifteen years old, they said to me, "You know, look, it'd be great if you could apply to go to Oxford or Cambridge. It'd be a big yeah, feather in the cap." Of course, of, the of course, sure. Um, so I went along with it. I did the Oxbridge um, uh, 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 series where they they prime you for doing the entrance exams and then they took us up to um, up to there for a um, for, a, for a, uh, a field visit to see what it was like at oxford and i just knew i'd be a fish out of water immediately when i got there yeah, yeah next I could... day i told them that i would come i i was bailing out of that i wasn't going to do it okay uh, and uh at the time we you know we didn't uh we didn't have a phone um and wow. okay. uh, you know the school wrote to my parents and said, you know, he's pulling out of doing this. We're very disappointed. Um, and my dad, who had a very rudimentary education, but was a smart guy, um, you know, said, you know, well, what on earth are you going to do otherwise? You know, and I had all these crazy ideas like, you know, joining the French Foreign Legion. You know, I was convinced <laughs> that I was, I was going to either end up in prison or killed, you know, if I stayed where I was. But dad, you know, had the one of the genius moments in in my life where he said, "Well, why don't you go to try and you go to university in America?" Yeah, uh, and uh, and I said, uh, "Well, I thought to myself, my God, that's a great idea." Um, and so I literally I wrote to the American embassy in London asking for information about going to university in America. Yeah. Uh, they sent information back about um, about doing the SATs and some colleges and their academic rigors. Um, and but I just thought, you know, I hadn't heard of any of the colleges and the only one that I'd ever heard of was Harvard. Um, <laughs> but I had no idea where it was. Wow. So, uh, That's great. So I, yeah. So I so I used to uh, uh, I used to spend a tremendous amount of time in the central library in Cardiff because, you know, it was a, such a nice distraction from where I was brought up. Yeah. And and. Um, and so I knew everybody there. And so I went to the map room and I, you know, process of elimination. Is it Harvard in New York? Is it in DC? Is it in Chicago? <laughs> and then I see that it's in, in Boston. Right. Uh, and I wrote a letter to the president of Harvard University, Boston. Wow. Um, so was that, uh, was that Derek Bach at that point or was it? Uh, it was Derek to... Bach. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Great. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know his name. I didn't know who the president was. Right, right. Was. You just yeah. said it addressed it to the president, right. The presidents, yeah. And so I got a uh, I got a letter back from Harvard uh, about two weeks later with an application and a letter from Derek Bach. Wow. Uh, saying, you know, this is an unorthodox way of going about things. And, uh, you know, we uh, I wish you the best of luck and hope to see you in Cambridge in the future. So I did my uh, I did the SATs uh, over at uh, United World College of the Atlantic, which was in Wales. Um, yeah. Never done multiple choice before. Did just couldn't comprehend the fact that they gave you the answer in the thing. Right, I right. Just got used to that. So I did that, and then in about January of 1980, uh, I was in the sixth form common room, and uh, a secretary comes down from the headmaster's office and said, "Mark, there's an American man who wants to talk to you." Wow. Again, we didn't have a phone, so you had right, to go away and get right. hold on it. So I went down, and I get on, and it was uh, Seamus Mallon, who was the dean of admissions. Yeah. Uh, and Seamus was over, who subsequently became a really good friend. Um, Seamus was over interviewing the the, uh, the applicants from Europe, and he said, hey, you know, can we meet to the, uh, at the train station in, uh, in Cardiff at lunchtime? 
And I said, yeah, sure. So I go down and I meet him. And obviously, guy in a typical Harvard uniform, right? Yeah, Street yeah, jacket, yeah. Sure. Tie, yeah. Scruffy briefcase. Yeah. And, um, and he said, is there a place here where we could have an interview? And I said, well, if you like, uh, we can go into the Red Dragon, which was the pub in the train station. <laughs> and, I love it. That's awesome. And, and we went in there and we had the interview uh, in, in the pub in the train station. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I got a full ride to Harvard. Wow. That's awesome. I love that story. <laughs> that is fantastic. Wow. Yeah. That is and great. I, I love it. Interesting thing was, you know, it's only I, I was embarrassed to tell this story at the time when I was in Harvard, uh, you know, because I really had an inferiority complex. You know, I mean, I sure. thought, I, I knew yeah. I was the poorest kid in the class. Yeah. Um, and um, and so it's only in the last 20 years or so I've been opening up about telling people the, the story of how the hell I got there. I, I love it. Well, I know, you know, our mutual friend Pete Nanula had mentioned that you had a great story and he wasn't exaggerating. That's uh, that's fantastic. I love it. So so you come to the States, you come to Cambridge, you come to Harvard um, and you're there, graduate and you go off uh, to work, I think, in finance, I think for Oxford Resources. And you do that for, you know, something like 50 odd years. So you're in finance and I'm, I'm just so fascinated to find out so how does this pivot, which seems like quite a pivot, uh, from doing that work to golf architecture and, and all the stuff you subsequently did. How does that happen? What caused that? Well, um, so I, I uh, it's best to take you back to, um, yeah. to sort of how things uh, transpired for me getting into that first business. Um, sure. So my roommate's father owned the company. Uh, okay. Got it. Okay. And because I couldn't afford to go back to Europe for Christmas and Thanksgiving. Um, not that they have Thanksgiving over there, but um, but I um, I would go to their uh, their house for the holidays, and um, you know they they treated me very very well, and I became close to them. So after uh, so literally on graduation day, um, Michael Pascucci was the owner of Savarnik. Um, right. Yeah, I know that and, name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, he said to me, you know, what are you going to do for work? And I said, uh, well, I'm probably going to try and go back to London and look for a job. And he said, well, I thought you wanted to stay in the States. You love it here, right? So I said, yeah, but I can't get anybody really to interview me because I don't have, I've got visa issues. You know, I, I don't right, have a green right. card or anything. And, right. um, the job market then was a little bit tough. So, um, so, uh, he said, well, why don't you come and work for me? And I said, well, uh, okay, doing what? And he said, I'll find something for you. Um, and so so I went to work for him. And, uh -huh. uh, and at that time, auto leasing was getting into the uh, in its infancy. And right. Michael was a, um, you know, was a real pioneer in that business. Right. And so we had the first wave of cars who were coming uh, to the end of their leases. And uh, I sort of devised the best way to start marketing those cars. Okay. And wrap up the, the back end of the business. And to cut a long story short, um, we, uh, my, I remember my first month of work, I dealt with 20 cars coming to the end of the lease. Okay. By the time my tenure in that business ended 15 years later, at that time, we'd been acquired by Bank of America and everything. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I was overseeing 20,000 cars a month. Oh, my. Uh, wow. You know, it was a four or five billion dollar a year business that we were taking care of. And so... So that was the end of that. Uh, you know, I, I left Bank of America in 1999. I took some time off. Um, and then Michael called me out of the blue. You know, he knew me well enough. And he said, hey, I, you know, I want to build a I want to build a golf course. And I'd like you to do it for me. Uh, and to which I replied, well, Michael, I pretty much only worked for you in my whole career. What the hell do I know about building a <laughs> golf course? <laughs> And he said, ah, I know that you'll figure it out. And he goes, you'll learn on the job. You'll be fine. Uh, and so I threw myself into it. And luckily wow. enough, uh, I just hit on something that I really loved. And I took to right away. And, uh, you know, as you know, I went back to Harvard, went to the graduate right. school of design. I did every executive class that they did. I read everything that I possibly could. And the rest is history. That is awesome. So that's 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 interesting. So that's the nexus. I because because we're gonna and we'll get into now. You know, talking about Sabonic, um and um, not just any golf course, not just any location. Sort of um, 
hallow ground, you know, right between or next to Shinnecock and National Golf Links, two of the absolute gems in uh, United States golf um, on Long Island. And that's where Michael gets the land to sort of build this golf course. And you're involved in this project. And now you've sort of taken these crash courses, you've come up this, which is very impressive, you come up to speed and there's as you know better than I do, lots of issues with building golf courses, permitting, oh, yeah. environmental, architecture, obviously construction and stuff. And um, I want to get into sort of talking about what Sabonic was like, because for, I'm sure a number of our listeners will know this, um, one of the reasons, there were sort of two things that um, I remember at the time were very noteworthy for any of us who love golf about it. One was the location I just mentioned, the other yeah. one was the two co-architects, which was, yeah. you know, Tom Doak and Jack Nicholas. And I know Michael was uh, Jack's neighbor down at Lost Tree Village, um, but he gets both of them together. Um, two people who not only have really different styles, but I think it's fair to say neither one is exactly a shrinking violet. Um, <laughs> so uh, what was that whole thing like? And we can take any pieces with it uh, that you want to start with in terms of talking about it, but just the whole project, your first project, all these issues. And now you've got these two luminaries who never really worked together before. Um, and boy, what was that like? I'm just so it must've been interesting. Yeah. I mean, it really was. I, uh, I So the, the, the story is, is, uh, you know, Jack was the, uh, was the architect of record up front and, uh, you know, I had an extremely close relationship with Michael and, and frankly, you know, Jack brought that piece of property to Michael's attention. Mm. So we were doing everything with Nicholas design right out to the gate. But because I was on this crash course of reading everything I could about golf architecture, I kept seeing Tom Doak's name come up. Right. And I thought to myself, God, I've got to really, uh, you know, I've got to really pay attention to this guy. He's, you know, he's the really is the soup de jour right now. Right. And so, um, and so the, the weird thing that tipped me that tipped me off to pull the trigger on something was I was actually over in Wales. Um, uh, I was back visiting and I was at Celtic Manor Golf Club. And mm -hmm. um, and the guy who was the um, who was the director of agronomy there um, was friends with uh, David Kidd. Yeah. And and he told me that, uh, you know, David had built Bandon Dunes. Right. And guy Tom Doak has built the second one and that's supposed to be a fantastic course yeah. and Jim McKenzie is the guy there he's still a friend he's a great guy and he said to me he said yeah you know Doak's written this book called the anatomy of a golf course yeah. and uh he goes I know you're trying to read everything he does but trust me read that one yeah and I said I said Jim I've got the book with me uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I and I and I I want to I said I've been meaning to read it on this trip I said but I'm going to by the time I landed back in New York, I'd finished the book. Okay. And I thought, my God, this guy's really, really something. And yeah. so I went to speak to Michael and I said, look, we've got to find a way to, um, you know, to include Tom in it. Uh, I really, truly believe that. And Michael, to his credit and his absolute genius, um, ended up, uh, you know, bringing the two of them together and agreeing to work. And, um, but I, I can say this, I, for every minute that Jack and Tom were together, on that property i was right there for every single minute of it wow and it was fascinating wow. i bet i mean yeah. how did they mesh those two styles together i mean and you're you have a front row seat on that that must have been fascinating it was i mean you know i think people people up front were saying uh you know oh my god that's they're going to be at one another's throats right and, you exactly know, I mean, very divergent styles exactly um, and um i i've got to say you know Jack, obviously, being with in the upper hand there, was nothing but a true pro and an absolute gentleman. And, uh, you know, it, it, it could have gone south. But to, to Jack's credit and to Tom's credit, they were both really open-minded and they worked well together. Despite, you know, all of the rumors that you hear about it, I can, I can say you 100% it was there was never any fights out there they were they were both the consummate professionals wow that's wonderful um and just you know on tom the other book uh, among other things that he's so famous for is the confidential guide to um golf courses and um for i think a lot of listeners will remember this i mean it it kind of became this cult 
piece of work. I mean, he when it was first done, it was sort of like stapled together. Then he, you know, put it <laughs> in a single volume and um, which if you like try to get one of the original volumes, they go for crazy amounts of money. And now he, and then he did these five volumes, you know, uh, where he went all over the world and stuff. But the thing about Tom, right, is um, when I said he's not a shrinking violet, when he comes to criticizing golf courses, which he does not exactly um, pull his punches in that book. Um, he's very no, he candid, right? He's a candid guy. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I can remember when we held our first press conference, you know, that that was obviously the the red button issue that people were dying to bring up. Right. Um, and I I'm guessing it was probably a mutual friend of ours who uh, who brought up that question. And hit Jack <laughs> in the eyes of it. You know what, what? You know, what do you think about what Tom has written in his right, book? About right. Of course. Courses? Yeah. And uh, and and Jack's. Uh, Jack's response was perfect, frankly. Jack followed what the owner wants. And, you know, an owner gives him a different mandate on every course. And, right. you know, it's, and some owners want to say, I want you to make this course that's the most difficult for Jack Nicholas to play. And you know what? Right. Jack will deliver. Right, right. Um, and that that's the way Nicholas design works. And so it was, uh, you know, it was um, it, people were hoping for the worst. Uh, and that wasn't the case at all. That the answer was a really reassuring one. Yeah, that's great. Um, and um, uh, so let's just talk maybe beyond those beyond the two co-architects. Kind of what was it? Sounds like this was an all-encompassing role for you. And there were environment. There had to be environmental issues, different things. I mean, what was? And this was over a number of years, right? That this project took place, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, we broke ground in. Um, we 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 bought the property in two thousand one. We broke ground in 04, and then we opened up for play in 06. Right, and you um, noteworthy. Uh, you get the U.S. Women's Open um, yeah. for two thousand thirteen, and you know obviously that's quite a significant tournament. Um, and they're coming to a course that is new. Um, and obviously they haven't had a major or a tournament there before. What was that whole thing? I know you served, um, all the different hats you had, all the Sabonic hats you had on was, you know, executive director, um, for that tournament. What was that like working with the USGA, getting the course ready and ultimately holding it in 2013? What was that all like? Well, multiple visits from the USGA before, uh, I mean, we had a, uh, we had a, uh, uh, you know, we had a plan where we, uh, the desire was to really make it one of the most financially successful, if not the most financially successful women's open that they'd ever had. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Michael Pascucci was really eager to ensure that that happened. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Michael's very well networked and, uh, you know, he's a, he's a great, great fundraiser and Michael was all in. Uh, and so, um, you know, he really spearheaded uh, raising a phenomenal amount of money in sponsorships for the USGA, which was just awesome. Right. Um, but then there was also the course setup too. And Michael was very much involved in the course setup. You know, he knows his stuff. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I was, I was part of all of that, but really more to do with the, the running of the tournaments as opposed to, uh, you know, the setup of the course. Right. And, um, but, but, you know, yeah, there's a different job every day when you're gearing up for a project like that. Um, and it was um, it, it was a tremendous amount of fun. It was a fantastic learning experience. Uh, and I have to say that, uh, you know, the couple of weeks leading up to that and the week of the tournament were brutal. I mean, just I absolute boot camp. Um, but, you you know, you look back on it and say, my God, you know, it was it was that was really a great, great experience. Um and, you know, it went from everything from you would sort of micromanage every day into 15 minute segments, you know, yeah. with Michael, somebody getting to see Michael, somebody uh, interacting with the USGA, going into the afternoon uh, meeting as to what the course setup for the next day would be. Um, yeah. It was it was uh, it was never ending, but it was it was great. And it can be tricky setting up courses there. I mean, we don't have to look too far to your neighbor. Um, and the USGA has had its um, challenges with course setup at Shinnecock over the years. The winds change, the greens dry out. Um, we actually had Walt Driver on 
um, who was a USGA president from probably 20 years ago about the 2004 Shinnecock US Open. So that's, I mean, that course setup, they look at those meteorology uh, weather forecasts like um, with a precision that is like it's a lunar landing or something, right? Because I mean, it's, the lid is changing the winds, greens dry out, something that's perfect setup, you know, all of a sudden becomes, you know, not so perfect. Yeah, you bet. I mean, it, it's just you've illustrated all of the bullet points that you got to take into consideration. It, it's just it is it, it is it gets really crazy. And uh, I had my first exposure to that was when I was out at the Broadmoor up in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, and I was at the weather station. The Women's Open, I think, was a year or two before. Right. And, um, That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember being in the meteorology office. My colleague just leaving there um, <laughs> in the meteorology office there and seeing these storms coming off the Rockies. Yeah, and, uh, and I was just, I, I just was thought it was mind boggling as to how well they could predict things. And yeah. we had incidents like that over in Simonic. You know, we had a massive fog that came through one day, and yeah, um, you know, it was, uh, it, it, yeah, it was fascinating. But they they control things really well. They're on top of the game. Yeah, they really are. And uh, we actually had John Bodenhammer on last month, who's now running all the course setup and chief championship officer. And of course, they were out here at LACC for the U.S. Open. And yeah, it's it, they do a great job. They they it's it's a nerve wracking thing watching it, but they do a great job. Yeah. Uh, they've got all the data. So, um, wow. So you were with Bob Sabonic through the U.S. Open. Tremendous golf course, tremendous experience, I'm sure. Um, along, uh, in addition to that though, you're, and maybe you can expand on this a little, it sounds like you had sort of a golf consultancy business you developed, um, so that you were doing projects above and beyond Sabonic, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, once the golf course was built, it then becomes a, you know, more of an operational thing. And so right. I, I sort of, by nosing that a little bit, um, and you know, it, it was wonderful meeting all the members and, and, you know, and interacting with them and sort of starting to develop the place as an actual club and not just a golf course. Right. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I, I had a bit more time on my hands. I had experience and, you know, Michael allowed me to, um, you know, to develop something else and see what became of it. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and it was, uh, it, it, it was really great. I know. I mean, I got to travel to a, a lot of interesting places around the world and consult doing, of various work. I mean, all the way from um, uh, telling the um, the Essex County Club up in Massachusetts to, yeah. um, you know, how they could rebuild a green which was on top of the town water well. Uh, and the lease was <laughs> expiring. So, you know, we had to do a number of environmental um, innovations out at Sabonic, um, which haven't been done in too many places at all, but that was something that we could do up there. Yeah. Um, you know, I was in South Korea at, uh, at Whistling Rock um, to, um, you know, to sort of talk with them about how they could develop the whole golf cottage and residential uh, component yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, uh, worked over in Laborde in France um, and uh, Golf de Speroni. Um, I've just done stuff all over the place. And I think that's what one of the problems with being a jack of all trades is, you know, you, you, you just kind of get, you dabble in a lot of stuff, you know. <laughs> but it sounds like, but what fun um, and what, you know, talk about seeing the world and all the different golf venues you've been to. That's very cool. One project that I sort of saw that intrigued me a little bit that I wanted to ask you about um, was being hired, I think, if I have my facts right, by Don Zucker to discover uh, the um, uh, who actually designed North Shore Country Club on Long Island. So a little bit of a golf mystery um yeah maybe tell us about that and how you solved the mystery well i i so i uh, i met don for lunch um and he said hey uh, you know i bought north shore country club um and i'd spoken to them in the past they were having some financial uh, problems after the madoff uh affair yeah. Yeah. and um and so don bought it and um and i knew him from sabonic uh, and he called me up and he said hey i'd kind of like you to help me you know, with, with the club. And so I said, sure, I'd be happy to do it. Um, and I, I recall that was on a Friday. Um, on yeah. a Monday, uh, Don called up a little irate and said, somebody's <laughs> called up and said that this golf course isn't a Tilling Gas golf course. I mean, you know, what the hell's all that about? 
And so I said, um, I said, don't worry, Don. I said, everything I've ever heard is a telling gas golf course, but I'll look into it and I'll get to the bottom of it. And I literally hung up the phone and I thought to myself, my God, that doesn't look like a telling gas golf course. Yeah, now I can right, think right. Of. So um, I started researching the history of it. I found out that the club was founded originally by the uh, the Harmony Club in Manhattan, which was right. a, uh, a German-Jewish uh, right. city club. Yeah. Um, and so I looked into the records there. I approached them. They uh, they split off with North Shore, you know, in the 20s, I think. Okay. Um, but they said that all of their records were in the New York Public, in the, um, not the New York Public Library, New York Historical Society. Okay. On the West Side. Okay. So, um, so I went in there and I started digging through the archives and it was absolutely fascinating. I started off with their records dating back to the 1840s. And everything was written in German in just this magnificent script. And they would have um, obituary cards for when a, a member died. And so I'm flipping through and it became really interesting. You know, I get up to the 1890s and now all of a sudden they started writing in English. I get to 1912 and <laughs> um, there were two obituary cards for the same day. And that was Isidore Strauss and um, Benjamin Guggenheim, who just died on the t- Titanic. Yeah, um, and uh, and then I get through to now to the juicy bit as to when North Shore was happening, and that was where I found the letters from uh, thanking uh, Seth Rayner for his work on right. helping design North Shore Country Club. So I had to call up Don, and I told him, and I said, uh, Don, uh, so I got good news and I got bad news for you. Um, right. goes, What's the right. bad news? And right. I said, it's not a tilling gas golf course. Uh, Don hit the roof a little bit. Yeah. And I said, but here's the good news. Right. <laughs> it's a Seth Rayner golf course. And C.B. McDonald also seemed to consult on it. Though we'll never be able to confirm that for sure. Uh, but uh, but I said that uh, this guy is as good as it gets. Though he, you know, the provenance and the pedigree of this club is exceptional. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Tillinghast is wonderful, but Rayner McDonald is, you know, kind of the zenith. And um and I, you know, I, and, and you're right. I mean, you never probably proved McDonald was involved, but he lived around there. Right. And this is around, I think the time that the Lido club was being built, right? That's absolutely correct. Yes. Correct. Um, yeah. And, you know, just, which reminds me as long as we mentioned the Lido club, I mean, so, you know, that's kind of, um, you know, among golf, as you know, well, you know, one of golf architecture geeks, you know, just this, um, uh, I don't know. It's like the Atlantis of lost land because it, you know, was this allegedly greatest course um, in the world at that time, or at least in the United States, um, built on um, not great land, swampy land, but just permanently carved out by McDonald and so forth. You know, this brilliant course, which we lost at, you know, World War II. And it was and and I don't know if you've made it out to Wisconsin yet, but one of the noteworthy golf architectural projects to bring it up to the present day was recreating the Lido Club um, with all of the different I've, 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 Have you seen it? I've, I've actually got I've actually got a little bit of a history with all of that too. Oh, please! I want to hear I want to hear it because I mean I I read about you know these shapers you know that have GPS and they're using these diagrams and. I've seen, obviously I haven't been to it, but I've seen uh, the fried egg um, golf people, you probably know, you know, have done a lot on that. They have, you know, written a lot about it and I'm fascinated. So yeah, please tell, I'd love to hear. So, um, I, you know, I'm, I've, um, I'm, I'm very good friends with Jim Rubina, who was in, um, who was in Tom Doak's shop. Yeah. And, um, and, and Jim uh, had a lot of the information about, um, about the, uh, the Lido. Um, which he'd gotten from George Bartow, uh, you know, who was a, a real C.B. McDonald and Raymer expert. Yeah. And um, and so anyway, Mike, uh, Jim has a you know very good relationship with Mike Kaiser. And Mike had asked Jim if he knew where he could rebuild the Lido. Yeah. Uh, and he said that he would like to do it in Long Island because that's where the Lido was. Sure. So. So Mike got a. So Jim said, you know, you got to contact Mark. Mark knows everything about Long Island. Sure. Uh, you know, let, let's let, let's see what he can come up with. So I spoke to Mike, 
Um, and he told me what he wanted to do. And so I said, uh, okay, listen, I'll scout out a bunch of sites. I'll eliminate a bunch of them. Uh, and we'll get it down to a, a small group. Um, and you can come out to Long Island and we can tour them and see. So, um, so anyway, I narrowed it down to eight different properties. Okay. Mike came, Mike came out, Mike came out over a two day period and we visited all of them in Long Island. And, um, I mean, they run the gamut from the Kings Park Psychiatric Center to uh, Beth Page Blue, uh, Eisenhower Park, Heksha uh-huh. uh, uh, Park, which Mike and I visited. Uh, we, it, this was right after Hurricane Sandy. And we went down there, and it looked like uh, something from some kind of dystopian movie. You know, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it was an apocalypse that happened down there. Uh, and it was funny because, uh, you know, obviously we didn't find the right sites in Long Island to be able to do it. Um, but I was at the presentation that Michael Kaiser and Tom Doak did uh, at the Lynx Club uh, a couple yeah. of months ago. Um, and Michael Kaiser happened to mention about, you know, that the dream of, uh, you know, a building in Long Island had died at some point. Uh, and I said and I got up and I said, well, actually, you know, I was with your father at the moment that the, the dream died. Oh, wow. And it, wow. And it, it happened at Hexer State Park. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so and so, I have been fascinated by the story. I think it's wonderful. It's amazing that it's gotten built. And I have a tea time on uh, June the 3rd next year to play there. Wonderful. This year. Excuse me. This, this year, year, right. We're in 2024 this year. Yeah. Well, I will tell you... Um, you know, uh, the reviews I've seen and um, the videos, I mean, the Friday golf folks, Andy Johnson, who, you know, founded it, you know, really is into the architecture stuff. And and um, it looks fabulous. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I you will, I'm sure, have a great time. I think, you know, like you would expect for that course, the way it was, you know, there's lots of blind shots, lots of angles very wide fairways, you know, but, you know, there's a right way to, there's an optimal line, a less optimal line, you know, it just, it looks wonderful. So it's, you should have a great time. It's genius. No question about it. And it's wonderful that that genius hasn't been lost, uh, lost over time, you know, uh, it was lost, but now it's been recreated. It, it's funny, you know, knowing Tom Doak as well as I do. Yeah. You know, Tom's a bit of a, Tom's a, bit of a Luddite. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And the fact that it was a big leap, I think, for him to be able to embrace this technology with GPSing and everything to recreate a golf course. But I know why he was okay with it because Tom's a very absolute absolutist. Uh, and, uh, you know, this wasn't Tom's design. This is, uh, this is CB McDonald's design. Right. And so Tom was okay with embracing the technology to be able to build that. And I think it's the right thing to do. Maybe just spend a minute because people, and including me, don't quite fully understand this. How does the GPS with these shapers and stuff exactly work? I mean, is it, it maybe if you can talk, because I know you would know about this stuff. How does that exactly work? Uh, you know, they, they've been using the, uh, that technology for a while now on, the, on, you know, complete site development for, you know, for real estate. And, you know, but I think a lot of it has been, um, you know, it's, it's somewhat um, it's it's really rough shaping is what it is. Okay. Um, and 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 as I understand what has happened out at the Lido, they've taken it to another level. And and yeah. full disclosure, I'm 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 not fully conversant with with um, you know with with how that all panned out. Um, but as I understand it, you know this um, this technical guru in Chicago put the whole uh, you know the whole virtual version of Lido together yeah. somehow that up with the GPSing to be able to build the golf course. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's my guess, you know, obviously Tom and, and Michael Kaiser and everybody would, would know better than I, but it would be my guess that a lot of fine shaping was still done by, still done by hand. Yeah. Um, or rather on smaller machines, but the big stuff was done, you know, it, it's been pretty, it may well be the very first golf course where they've used this technology. You may be right, because, I mean, every story I've read about it talks about this technology and that it played such a big role in, in building it. You mentioned Jim, you know, Tom's, you know, colleague. Um, 
and that sounds like you know well as well and you know just closer to home for where i am out here on the west coast is pastiempo um yeah which you know i've only had the pleasure of playing once and um you know it is um I think phenomenal. Um, and um, I don't know if you've had the chance to play it. I think when you mentioned Jim, I think of it, because of course they're redoing all 18 greens um, yeah. and everyone was like, Oh my God, you're touching the Mona Lisa here. I mean, those greens are just um, uh, amazing. And, you know, and particularly that, and the golf course, um, I thought that back nine, especially was like just a clinic in golf architecture, the way, He uses the barranca and and sort of routes the course and the fairways. Have, have you had a chance to play? Are you familiar with it at all? Or have oh, I have. Oh, I have. Yeah, Urbina hounded me for a number of years to call play it. <laughs> I bet. And, yeah, and I was uh, I was out visiting um, with um, uh, with with my boss, who uh, a guy named Ed Devita, who lives in uh, lives in the area. Um, and I was out visiting with him, and I made sure that I made a point of uh, of playing there. And uh, it, it, you're absolutely right; it's fantastic. And hey, it, it, you know, if um, if Alistair McKenzie had his ashes skipped about that, it's right. Really a special place, right? Right. You walk by. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think what hole must be the sixth hole, the par five where he lived. You walk by, people point out his house. You know where he lived through. Yeah. And I know, you know, he felt you know tremendous about it. So let me sort of um, now pivot a little bit sort of to where you're you are today um with discovery land company um mm -hmm. so i think you uh started there in 2014 or so maybe talk to us kind of how you got involved with discovery land company and kind of what your role is and noteworthy projects you've done in that in that uh, role so discovery is um uh you know, I, I was after the U.S. Open in 2013. I, I was sort of thinking, you know what, I, I need to try something else. Yeah. Uh, and and I sort of anecdotally realized that discover. You know, I knew that Discovery had bought this large piece of property in the Hamptons, and um, and I I sort of could tell that people were sniffing around people who I knew about me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, and so you know, I I was. I was very devoted to the Pascucci family, you know, and, um, but, but, you know, it, 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 change is good. And, yeah. uh, and they, and discovery approached me and they, they said, uh, you know, look, we've got this project out there. Um, you know, we, we know that you're the guy to do it and we'd really like it if you could come on board and they did everything, uh, appropriately, you know, they approached the Pascucci family. They said, we're looking to do this. Um, the Pascucci's, you know, were totally understood and they thought, you know, they're always up for the good of the game. Um, and so I agreed to join Discovery and um, and I've had nothing but a wonderful experience with them. All the partners are hands on, um, you know, it's an incredibly innovative company. The vision is wonderful. The product is great. Um, and um, they've treated me unbelievably well. Um, and but that's not to say that this project wasn't a. It nearly put me in the grave. <laughs> is this the way? Is this the one in Quag or East Quag? That's or? correct. Okay, that's yeah. Correct. So maybe talk yeah. about because I know there's. I ran across a lot of um, uh, a lot of material online about it. Uh, so I mean, it sounds like yeah, it was uh, a few potholes on the road, right? On that. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I was always confident we were doing the right thing, you know, um, and. Um, so when you've got that belief behind you, you can, uh, you know, you can, you, you can really go hard at it and know that you can sleep at night. Um, right. And, um, you know, it's funny after I did Savarnak, you know, um, you know, I remember thinking to myself, God, I never want to do anything in the Hamptons again. That was a night. <laughs> right. I'm sure all the regulations uh, and restrictions. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, you know what? This one was 10 times worse. Oh um, my. I, oh my. Yeah. I mean, we had, uh, you know, we had uh, environmental groups who were against us. Uh, it was difficult dealing with the town board, so they, because they they got influenced to some degree by them and some very loud um, members of the public. Um, but I knew that uh, from a technical and legal standpoint, we had every right to do what we were doing. But there was a moral issue too. Yeah, Discovery Land Company is and I, I this sounds like i'm just touting for discovery no no that's okay it's the absolute truth 
um, is that we uh, we always want to do the right thing. We want to embed ourselves in the community. We don't want to sort of be this isolated group up on the hill uh, with a lot of money. It's not that way at all. And um, and we realized pretty early that we could do something dramatic for the environments out here. Right. You know, the site was disturbed. Uh, there was big problems with algae blooms and stuff in the bay. And, you know, rather than belabor all the details on it, we came up with a sound scientific proposal to be able to alleviate all of those issues. Uh-huh. And, uh, and um, you know, we've, we've now at the stage where we've got, uh, we've got five golf holes built up there. Um, and this is going to be something that everybody is going to be proud of. Um, and, um, and I think it's going to be a fantastic golf course. It's, you know, it's, it's in Pine Barrens, just like yeah. the greatest golf course in the world. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we're, we're, we're embracing some architecture, Tom Fazio, who has just been a, a, just an absolute prince to work with, um, uh, as you know, is really, uh, interested hugely in making this a very, very special golf course and it will be. Wow. Wow. Um, what other projects are you, are you generally focused on the East Coast for discovering things? Obviously, I know like closer to me, Madison Club is out here, you know, which is, I think, a Discovery Land property and, you know, you places all over the place. But is your focus on the East Coast and you sort of, given all of your architectural knowledge uh, with golf, do you get involved much with the architectural side of it or what, what do you, what's your role exactly? You know, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> the... Um... This is such a big project for us that I spent a ton of time on. Time and focused on uh, this. You know, yeah. I, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's a very very uh, wealthy area, obviously, and it's a very sure. very difficult area. Yeah. So it, it has taken up by far the bulk of my time is working on this. Got um, it. I think that now we're over the hump that we're uh, you know that things are things are going really well with the construction and there's not going to be any more roadblocks. We were proved correct at the end of the day for everything that michael melbourne was proposing yeah um, and uh and so now i think it was going to be time where you know i i diversify a little bit and, and work on some of our other properties but um but you know and i, I do want to give a shout out to mike melbourne and ed devita who i work for um yeah on a direct basis and steve adelson uh they've um you know discovery land company is a is a very innovative forward thinking morally right company and uh it's just you know you get promised the world when you come when you come onto a job but you know you get to see whether it actually pans out or not and this one has it's just um it it it's a, it's a pleasure working for these guys that's awesome um let me sort of uh get you out of here with a more general golf architectural question given i know how you know, knowledgeable you are in the area. I mean, you know, as we sit here today, um, so much of um, it seems like the work being done is to sort of um, renovations, not the right word, restoration maybe is a better word for all of these golden age gems. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, I just think it's been a very cool time. If you're into golf architecture, what's going on? the last five or 10 years. I mean, obviously Gil Hans is probably high on that list for all the work he's done at some classic courses, Andrew Green, you know, at Congressional and Oak Hill and stuff. And um, really trying to sort of um, bring back um, some of the shot values and strategy that these golden age gems had um, that sort of um, over the years, People would plant a million trees, do all these different things. And now we've kind of gone back, uprooted a lot. I guess Oakmont probably started it 30 years ago, but, you know, tried to open up the vistas and and stuff. I'm just curious as someone, you know, who's as knowledgeable as you, kind of what's your take on all of that? I mean, it seems pretty cool to me, but you know a lot more about golf architecture than I do. I'm curious kind of what you think about it. I I, I think it's, uh, I think that there's been, I'll, I'll give you an example of uh, of a place uh, which is particularly notorious that you mentioned earlier on, which was LACC. Yeah. Um, I played LACC before Gil came in and redid the place. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. You could see it was a great golf course, um, but it, it had really, it had had some stuff done to it over the years that was, uh, you know, but that wasn't quite right. It wasn't right. It didn't 
it didn't meld into what the architectural intent was initially. And right. Gil, Gil does his homework and really restored it to how it should be. And I think that, uh, you know, Yale Golf Club is another example where that's happening right now. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm glad you know. I'm glad you. I don't mean to I'm glad you mentioned Yale when you were talking about Rainer. I was going to bring up Yale, so I'm glad you talked about it because you know, with our friend Pete Nanula, I played on the team in college, and I remember playing Yale. I grew up in Connecticut, you know, in West Hartford, not far from uh, New Haven, and uh, such a dramatic golf course. I mean, I'm sure you've seen Doke's video uh, where he talks about the scale of Yale. And, you know, just the incredible, you know, uh, way that course was. And it was so sad, even though you and I went to their rival, I mean, so sad to sort of see the disrepair that had sort of fallen. And and I, I was overjoyed to, you know, see that they raised the money to hire Gil. And I know he's going to do it right. I mean, that, that's got to be something that I think you and I both would look forward to seeing what, what he produces and restores, right? For sure. I mean, and I just think that, uh, you know, and back to your original question, you know, yeah. uh, there, there are so many great golf courses that are like that. You know, that's yeah. why the likes of, uh, you, you know, the whole list of guys, you know, Doe, Cabina, Cook, Crenshaw, or Gill in particular, um, you know, they come in and they work on these golf courses, return it to how they were supposed to be. These guys were geniuses years ago. Oh, they for truly sure. were. Yeah. And, yeah. and, um, and, and it's a tragedy to lose what they intended to do. I mean, you know, would you uh, would you touch up the Mona Lisa? Right. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, really, really, you know, I'm, would you mess around with Pablo Picasso's work? No. Um, you know, so what makes golf courses different? You know, I mean, they've done it at Yeamans Hall. They've done it at right. Fisher's Island. I mean, it's, right. and, and I think that that's just going to keep happening and happening because, um it's such great stuff. It really is. And 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 uh, I couldn't agree more. Mark, I want to thank you. This has been a lot of fun as I knew it would be. Um, thank you for your time. Um, and um, we'll look forward to um, more fun stuff of Discovery Land projects that you're overseeing. And, and uh, thanks again. Really appreciated the conversation. Really happy to do it. And uh, I'll come back anytime you want. I appreciate it. Thank you.